Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, turn our attention to his word now. Uh, Last Sunday, we brought our study of Hebrews to a close. We know that was a long study. It took us over a year to make our way through the entire book of Hebrews. And uh, it was a book all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I mean, what a wonderful topic to consider for that length of time that we did. And we considered a strong argument in that text, a strong argument to a young church that had believed on Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of their Jewish faith. And, and it forced us then to consider many aspects of the Jewish law, as well as the Old Testament accounts. And today we'll begin a new journey through what I would say is another very Jewish text that serves really to bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This book is not intended to be a thorough chronological account of the life of Jesus, but rather a biographical account that touches on some of the most important aspects of Jesus' life, as well as Jesus' teaching. And it has the intent of supporting and convincing a Jewish people of that particular time that, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, that He is the Messiah, that He's the sovereign King over all the world. And Matthew is one of four Gospels, three of which, as we refer to, as being synoptic. So you've got the synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you've got the Gospel of John. Synoptic basically means that they're the same or similar. And so those three Gospels, uh, they tell the story in a similar way, whereas the Gospel of John gives us a, a bit of a different perspective, all four of which, of course, agree with one another, even though some would suggest that they don't. Uh, they absolutely do, um, but there's three Gospels in particular that are very similar in nature. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of them, in fact, including John, they have, they have different themes. Each of the Gospel has a particular theme that the author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, seeks to put forth. In Mark, we see Jesus as the suffering servant. That's the theme of the Gospel of Mark. In Mark 10, 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. In Luke, we see Jesus as the Son of Man. The goal for Luke is to put forth that Jesus is all man. Uh, And Luke gives us, as well as Matthew, a genealogy. It's only Matthew and Luke that give us genealogies. In Luke, we find that in chapter 3. And Luke's genealogy really shows us the lineage from Jesus to Adam, the first man. In John, we see Jesus as the Son of God. There's no genealogy in John uh, other than what we read in John 1, 1, which says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is John's genealogy because he's putting forth the fact that Jesus is God. And then in Matthew, as you saw in the brief intro there, in the crown that comes up, we see that Jesus is the sovereign king. That's That's the intent of Matthew, is to put forth Jesus as the king. And here at the beginning, Matthew provides for us the legal lineage from Abraham to Jesus. Immediately here in verse 1, making the case based on this genealogy that Jesus is both Messiah and King. And so that's where we'll spend our time this morning is in Matthew chapter 1. We'll make our way as far as verse 17 this morning. Now, as mentioned, the gospel of Matthew serves as the perfect bridge from the Old Testament where we have roughly 400 years of silence from the end of Malachi to the first words of the New Testament. 
There's this entire gap of time that exists between the end of Malachi and when we begin to see Jesus' ministry, really when, the John, when John the Baptist begins to proclaim that the Messiah is coming. And for, for our sakes, when we're just reading through the text as we close the book on, on the Old Testament, that's what we need to think about in terms of 400 years where God's people were continuing to, continuing to serve, continuing to live, but really asking the question, where is God? Where is the Messiah? And then as we come into the New Testament, we have the Gospel of Matthew that at the very beginning in chapter 1 begins to declare it's Jesus. It's Jesus who is the Messiah. And so Matthew is very much making an argument to his brethren, his Jewish brethren, that their Messiah has come. And now Matthew, as I mentioned, is not a chronological history. It's not so much to include here's every day of Jesus' life and ministry, but rather key events and key teachings in the life of Jesus as experienced by Matthew. Um, Matthew of the Synoptic Gospels as well is the only one with apostolic authorship, meaning that Mark and Luke, they were not apostles. They were associates that had been brought into the ministry later on. Matthew is one who actually was called by and followed Jesus and spent time with him during his ministry. Now, Matthew, a few specifics about Matthew. Matthew, also known as Levi. So if you see the name Levi occasionally, that is Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Okay, And he was called to follow Jesus uh, early in his ministry while Jesus was ministering and calling others in the town of Capernaum. This is where Matthew lived. In fact, we read in Matthew 9.9 that as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, this would not likely have been a very popular decision of Jesus, especially amongst the disciples he'd already called, uh, namely Peter, Andrew, James, and John, because as a tax collector, Matthew would not have been well-liked. In fact, to say that he was not well-liked would be an understatement. How many of you have seen The Chosen? If you're like me and you've seen it, you're probably going to have a tough time going through the Gospel of Matthew and not picturing the character Matthew, right? And I do believe that that they do a pretty good job, I think, of accurately depicting Matthew. Now, there's some aspects of his tendency and personality that, of course, we can't, I mean, we don't, we don't know any of that for sure. But what we do know is that he, as a tax collector, he was a numbers guy. Uh, he probably was very, very much kept accurate records, liked to write things down. Much of this is kind of portrayed in the movie. And what's also portrayed in the movie is that when he's called, the rest of the disciples, Peter especially, is like, whoa, 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 what are you doing, Jesus? Because tax collectors, they were considered traitors, okay? Tax collectors were hated. They were Jewish men who collaborated with Rome to tax their own people and to tax them heavily. We all have our experiences with the tax guy, right? I mean, all of us, if you paid taxes, you found yourself going, man, that was way more than I thought, or oh, that hurts. And that's the thing. I can, I mean, I can remember early on in my corporate career, I had my first bonus. It wasn't all that much. It certainly wasn't that much after the taxes came out, which was total surprise to me because I went to HR when I got the thing because they told me, here's what your bonus is going to be. And then I got the check and I'm thinking, that's not right. So I literally, I go to HR. I said, something happened. Something went wrong. And the HR was like, that's called taxes, buddy. <clears throat> and so even in our day and age, right, we can, we can feel the pain from taxes, especially at this time when you had to go and line up and you were taxed heavily and you had to give the majority of your income to Rome, to an oppressor that was there living in your city. So this would have been a very interesting choice on the part of Jesus to bring Matthew in. And I think Matthew was well aware of the fact that he was viewed the way that he was. 
And we'll see that come out in a little while. Now, Matthew, if he was good at his job, and we suspect that he was, he would have been very wealthy. And there would have been much that he was leaving behind from a worldly perspective, a nice home, a good income in order to follow Jesus. But as Scripture says, he immediately follows him. There also would have been great risk for Matthew because of his relationship with Rome. Now, Matthew, though, in light of his trade and in light of his training, he would have been very smart, a good bookkeeper. It makes sense that this this gospel has for some time been revered as particularly amongst those who look at the the Bible less as a a book of faith and as the inspired Word of God and more just as a historical account, that people look at Matthew as very much a historical or a historically accurate book. And so it, it makes sense then that, that God using Matthew for this book, that it would be considered as, as uh, accurate as it is, and that there's this genealogy at the very beginning that we encounter that really serves as an incredible proof or evidence of Jesus Christ and His claims to who He was and is. And so you see, for Jewish people, genealogies were very important. Uh, great effort was made to track genealogies. And, and here at the beginning of this gospel, the genealogy provides tremendous evidence and credibility to Matthew's claim that Jesus is who he is. Now, it's often our tendency when we come to parts like this in the Bible, I think, here in what we see in chapter 1, to quickly pass over the genealogies. Um, I suspect that maybe some of you have done that before in your own Bible reading, that when you come to a long genealogy, you think, well, I'll just go ahead and move past this part. It's just a whole lot of difficult names that I don't really understand and probably isn't necessary for me to really grasp the concepts here in the text. But I would challenge you, not so fast. Let's not move so quickly beyond these because uh, they are the Word of God. This is Scripture too which means it's here for a reason, and that means that there's something we can learn from these genealogies. At the very least, they serve, as I've mentioned, of of just simply evidence of who somebody says that they are. But in the case here of Matthew's genealogy, we actually see a good bit more than that. And so I want for us, for the sake of reading the Word of God aloud here this morning, to just read through, if you would, read along with me in verses 1 through 17. There's going to be a lot of begot here, but bear with me as we make our way through it. In chapter 1 of the Gospel of Matthew, in verse 1, we read, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah, and Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, and Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abiud, and Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eleazar, and Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. 
from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. There's a number of things that we can look at and find here as we look at this genealogy. Here in verse 1, we see Matthew dive right in and declare basically that this book is an accurate history of Jesus Christ. That's what he's stating when he says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He says this is an accurate history of the man Jesus. Uh, Now, there in verse 17, we read that this genealogy specifically includes three different sets of 14 generations. Uh, when Matthew writes that, it should cause us maybe to go, okay, what, what, why is he specifically saying 14 generations or three sets? And, and is it a coincidence that there's three sets of 14? Uh, the fact is, we're not going to consider every name here this morning. We don't have time for that. Uh, and we know, though, based on Old Testament histories, as well as the genealogy that we see in Luke, if we compare the two, that Matthew does actually leave out some names. So he's not included every single name that could possibly be included in there. We don't know exactly why, but I suspect if we did a study on that, we could probably come up with some theories as to why Matthew leaves out certain names. Uh, Now, it's not uncommon to do so. He hits on the major generations here. And I think the reason why he does that, the three sets of 14, is really because for Jewish people, they were expected to memorize Scripture. The three sets of 14 really allows them or makes it easier for them to memorize each of these sections if they know that each have the same number. Now, other people have suggested that there's more to this. There's something called numerology where you look at different numbers in Scripture and different names and they can mean different things. And I don't know, that could very well be true, but I don't think that's the case necessarily here. I think this is just Matthew's tendency to make it easy for them to understand as he records this. And so here in this first verse, Matthew makes his claim that Jesus is really four different things. Now, if you look at this and it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, you may think that doesn't quite add up to four. But really, even in this first statement here of Jesus Christ, he makes a claim, he makes a statement. And so in this first verse, Matthew makes his claim that Jesus is one, the Savior. He says that he's the Savior simply because he uses the name Jesus. If we look further to verse 21, we find, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' very name declares him as one who is Savior. And so uh, Matthew first says here that he's Savior. He says, secondly, that he is the Messiah as evidenced by the title that he uses, which is Christ. Jesus Christ is not his name. Jesus the Christ, is that's his title. And Christ means anointed one or Messiah. So here Matthew says that he is Jesus, Savior, the Christ, Messiah. And then he goes on to say that he is the son of David, which is important because this connects Jesus back to the Davidic kingly line. It connects him to the throne. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Verses 12 and 13, 2 Samuel 12 and 13. This is God's covenant with David, really all throughout chapter 7, but specifically in verses 12 through 13, we read, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, this is, of course, first fulfilled by Solomon, especially in the fact that Solomon is the one who builds the temple, builds a house for God. But we know based off of this statement of a forever throne that that's not fulfilled with Solomon, but rather through Jesus, through the Messiah. Matthew also then says that he's the son of Abraham, which connects Jesus to another covenant 
which is found in Genesis 12 and verses 1 through 3, which says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the Messiah who has a line to the king and who also has a Jewish line. And this is so important right off the bat. And and so the genealogy then goes on from there. Now, this is all important because for someone to make the claim that they were the Messiah, they needed to be Jewish, tracing back to Abraham, and they needed to have a line to the Davidic throne. And Matthew makes this claim all right there in the very first verse of this genealogy. Now, for those uh, Bible scholars this morning, those of you that have studied this genealogy and that of Luke's before, maybe what you know is that there is a potential problem in this genealogy as it relates to Jesus' claim to the throne. Uh, Let's look for a moment at verses 12 through 16. Uh, Or I guess I should say more verse 12 and 16. It says, And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Now, if we jump ahead, then we see in verse 16, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And so we see here that, in fact, this genealogy does take us all the way through Joseph, Jesus' earthly and adoptive father. Now, the problem that we see here is in the name Jeconiah, or this particular individual. In fact, um, and it says that it was around the time of Babylon, we find in Jeremiah... In Jeremiah chapter 22 and verses 24 through 30, a curse that comes upon one man by the name of Jeconiah. It says in Jeremiah 22 and verse 24, As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, which is a different translation of his name, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. He goes on to say, so I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. You see, the problem is there's a curse that comes upon Jeconiah here that says none of your descendants will serve or sit on the Davidic throne. And so that creates for us a problem here because if Jesus comes through this particular line through Jeconiah, how can he lay claim to the throne? And it's important for us to consider some of these things, especially because sometimes critics will want to say, well, you see here, this, this means that Jesus can't be the Messiah. The thing is, is there's more than one genealogy right? Once again, look at verse 16, and Jacob begot Joseph. So this is the line through Joseph, but what of his mother Mary? What of that line? You see, what we normally see in a genealogy is a pattern that goes through the fathers. What Luke gives us, as I mentioned, is another genealogy that very much speaks to Jesus's uh, humanity, to his, his, his position as man, but it comes through the mother. And so in Luke's genealogy, what he gives us is the line through Mary, which also connects back to David, 
but rather his son Nathan, not through Solomon. And so it's interesting just how God puts all of this together to show us that he has two parents, both of which have Jewish lineage, both of which have lineage back through David. And so his throne, his, his claim to the throne comes in part also through the genealogy of Mary. So again, these genealogies are very important and they provide really the legal defense uh, for the claims of Jesus. And it's fitting that both the tax collector, Matthew, as well as Luke, who's a physician, include their accurate records as a defense, right? It's only those two gospels and only all those two individuals, but it would be those types of individuals, right? A, an accountant and a doctor who would give us such accurate records to point us back to where Jesus had come from. And so uh, as we consider then another aspect of Matthew's genealogy this morning, what you would not normally see in a genealogy, and this I think would be, this will be the more practical component of our study here this morning. What is it that we see within this genealogy here this morning that seems somewhat out of place or that we wouldn't normally see, do you think? Women. We find women in this genealogy. In fact, not just in this gospel, but in all the gospels, as well as certainly here in Matthew, we will find that women play some key roles in the ministry of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, that the culture of the day would not have condoned. The fact is, when people want to come up with their different conspiracy theories as to the fact that Jesus wasn't who he really said that he was, or that he didn't die and was resurrected, that it was all a bit of a sham. I mean, if that was the case, then these guys really did a terrible job of putting together an airtight case, because never would you have women be the primary eyewitnesses at the tomb that morning, because their testimony would have been thrown out in a court of law. Uh, now, we, we could go ahead and address all the other issues of, of the treatment of women during this particular time, but rest assured that from a biblical perspective, though men and women created distinctly different, male and female, are certainly given the same value and worth. And we will see within the Gospels, especially in the actions of Jesus, that he very much esteems women. And the very fact that Matthew here in his genealogy intent, intended to prove what it does that he proves that he would pull women into this is a very unusual thing. And I think we ought to consider that here this morning. The first woman that we see is found in verse 3. Now in verse 3 we read, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar is the first woman that we come across. Now, if you don't know anything about Tamar or the account of Tamar, we find her in Genesis chapter 38. And I'll just give you a heads up. It's a pretty weird chapter. Weird from the standpoint of what Tamar does and how she's treated. And there's just all sorts of hypocrisy uh, on the part of especially the men involved in this, in this whole incident. Um, and so I, I won't read through the entire chapter for the sake of time this morning, but I will attempt to summarize for us. Now, Jude, Judah is the individual here. Judah is the father, and Judah's first son takes Tamar as his wife, but he dies. Now, the custom at the time is, if, if, if a, there's now a widow and she doesn't have children, then the next of kin, the brother, is to then take her as his wife, to care for her, and uh, Lord willing, for her to have children, and so on. And so Judah at this point says, okay, well, you can have my second son. Well, here's the problem. The second son dies. Now, at this point, you got to be thinking, Judah's saying, what's going on here? What's Tamar doing? Is she poisoning the water here? Or what, what, what's, what's going on? And so now she still doesn't have children. And the custom, once again, would be because he has a third son that she would then marry the third son. But Judah's a little concerned. He's thinking, I, I, I like my sons. I don't know that I want Tamar involved with them. So he begins to basically stall and say, Tamar, we'll take care of you. We'll give you another son. But 
you just wait a little while, and she becomes wise to the whole thing and knows that he's not planning on making good on his word here. So Tamar decides, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Now, this is where it starts to get a little crazy, because in our own minds, hopefully we'd go, wow, I can't believe this all went down like this. Because as Tamar learns that Judah's going to go out, he's going to go into the town, she decides, hey, I'm going to go ahead and dress up like a prostitute, and I'm going to lure Judah in. And she apparently was successful, just like that, which speaks, of course, to the character of Judah as well. But you know, Scripture doesn't seem to hone in on that all that much. And so here she lures Judah in, and she's in a disguise, and she's in a veil and all this. And, and she says to Judah, well, how will you pay me? And he says, well, I'll give you a goat. And she says, well, you don't have a goat with you. What are you going to do? And, and he says, what would you like me to do? And she says, and again, I'm paraphrasing, give me your ring, your signet ring. And once you provide payment, I'll give it back. Okay. Judah makes his way home and he sends out his guys. He says, hey, I need you to go pay somebody for me. Take him a goat. They go into the town, but guess what? Tamar's not there anymore. They can't make payment. In fact, they ask a lot of people, did you see this person? And people say, no, I don't know what you're talking about. They come home, they say, we still got the goat. Judah's angry. He doesn't know what's going to happen, but he lets the matter go. Not too long after that, Tamar announces, I am with child. What's Judah's response? Killer. Because he's wants to silence her? No, because, and this is one of the more ironic components of the whole story, he says, you've been immoral, <laughs> right? So there's some hypocrisy for you. And he says, you've been, you've been immoral, you're, you're not married. But what does she do? She says, oh, okay. She sends him his signet ring back and says, basically, you're the dad. So here's what's happening. This, this, I mean, and these are the days of our lives, right? And that's what's supposed to follow after that. So this is some crazy stuff here. And then it turns out that Tamar has twins who are Perez and Sarah. And so she thought she was going to be left out. Judah was going to try and kind of work her out of the family. And all of a sudden now, he's dad to these two boys. And so a little scandalous, right? Tamar is the tricky one here who pretends to be a prostitute, yet now she's part of the genealogy that leads to Jesus Christ. Now next, we have the second woman. It says in verse 5, Salmon, and it is pronounced Salmon, not Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Now, while Tamar pretended to be a prostitute, Rahab was one. Now, this is a great story, an absolutely incredible story of Rahab, and we've considered this one here recently in our study of Hebrews in chapter 11. You recall that Rahab is found first in Jericho. In Joshua chapter 2, she's there in the city that's about to come down, or the walls are going to come down, and she helps out the spies. But see, she's in a rough part of town, and she's known to be a prostitute, and it's, so it's not surprising here that she's, that she's sort of caught up in some nefarious activity, albeit it's with the intentions of helping the, the good guy, as it were. I mean, she's kind of in a place that she shouldn't be. And of course, this, these, her actions, it leads to her salvation, not only her salvation from the destruction of the city, but her actual salvation and becoming a believer, the one true God of Israel. And so then she cleans up her act and she eventually marries and she gives birth to Boaz, who, by the way, then marries Ruth, who's our third lady in the genealogy that we see, where it says, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Now, Ruth is the one who we read about in the book of Ruth. And Ruth is not a prostitute, but as we read about her, we know that her pedigree is not the best. If there was going to be somebody who was going to be able to make a claim to sort of a royal lineage or an upstanding family, it wasn't going to be Ruth. In fact, Scripture tells us that Ruth is a Moabitess. She's from Moab. The thing we know about Moab is that it's a cursed 
place and a cursed people. Moabites were under an eternal curse of God. A Moabite, in fact, could not even come into the temple of the Lord. They were banned from it. Yet this is her people. Now, Ruth does seem to be an upstanding woman, except for what might be some questionable snuggling at the feet of Boaz, right, that some have uh, taken issue with. But she's a widow from a bad town who now finds herself like Tamar and Rahab in the lineage to Jesus. And that's not all. We then come to the fourth woman, whose name is not even actually mentioned here in verse 6. As it reads, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, we don't know for sure why Matthew doesn't mention who this woman is, but we know her, right? Her name is Bathsheba. Now, you may be thinking, why does it seem that Bathsheba is the one who's scorned here and not David, who's also complicit in the act that we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 11? Now, we don't know that for sure. We don't know why Matthew doesn't choose to mention her name here where he mentioned the names of the others. But rest assured, David's not innocent, okay? Even though, even though yes, men uh, tended to be viewed much more favorably than women during this time, Scripture makes it clear here, David was at fault. But here's the thing. Bathsheba isn't innocent either. And that's the point here as we consider her in this genealogy. Bathsheba, for one, should not have been bathing where she was. Under law, she should have refused the king's advances. Okay, she's not innocent to that. And the fact is, she had a hand in this entire event as well. So now here, as we consider each of these four women, four out of five women, and you know, we won't, we won't tackle uh, Mary this week. And, and Mary, for all intents and purposes, is a sweet young woman, a chosen woman, uh, who's not uh, in any way, shape, or form at fault for anything. But of course, scandal follows her in the entire uh, narrative of, of the virgin birth. But of just these four women here listed in the genealogy that we've considered thus far, it's interesting that the women would have been mentioned to begin with at all. But at least maybe if they were upstanding women, but not a con artist, a prostitute, one with a bad reputation, and an adulterer, an accomplice to murder. I mean, when you say it that way, right, you go, man, there's some interesting characters here. Now, is it my intent to really defame each of these women this morning? Not at all. But I think it's important that we look at their place, certainly in Matthew's account, that he would mention them when he didn't have to, but even more so the fact that they are truly a part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I mean, certainly I could go on and I could deal with the issues of every person, nearly every person listed in this genealogy, whether we went back to Abraham and his issues and David and his issues, and we've already talked about Jack and I, I mean, it's a real motley crew when you begin to really kind of consider the various people that made up the family of Jesus Christ. And I think that's why, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew includes these names here at the beginning of the chapter. Now, I'd ask you again, as I just said his name, who is the human author of this gospel? It's Matthew, right? And who is Matthew again? He's a tax collector. I read to you earlier from Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9, specifically that verse regarding the calling of Matthew. Matthew being chosen as a disciple, but I ended there in verse 9. I want to read for you the full section here now in verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened As Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. 
And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And in verses 12 and 13, we read, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, when we really begin to then consider what Matthew observed, and even on that day where Matthew was called to be a disciple, that he began to learn very early on that this, this Messiah, this King, was coming for sinners. And so in light of that, in the light of the fact that Matthew even knows so much more his own heart and, and who he is as a tax collector, as one who was considered a traitor, it should make even more sense to us now the names that are included in the genealogy of Christ. I think this is why Matthew includes who he does. Now, Matthew, of course, didn't make all this up. He didn't fabricate all this, but he didn't have to include it, but he does because he makes the argument here that Jesus is the king, knowing full well that Jesus is a different kind of king, that he's a king of grace. As we see these names, we know that he is a king of grace. Paul writes in 1 Timothy in chapter 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Friends, I think there's a lot of us here this morning that when we think about our backgrounds, when we think about where we've come from, when we think about maybe even some of our own struggles still today, the Davids, the Jeconiahs, the Abrahams, the Tamars, the Rahabs, the Ruths, the Bathshebas, you see, they're not alone. Whether lies and deceit or maybe rough upbringings or failures and missteps, the fact is we're no different. And the enemy then, he whispers in our ears these lies that tell us we're not good enough. It tells us we're failures and we're beyond God's grace. He whispers that we're not important or that we're nobodies. And then we open God's word and we see on display this group of people whose lineage traces down to Jesus. People who thought the very same things about themselves. But yet God used them to bring about his son, Jesus Christ, into this world, the Savior of the world. And we can look at those people and we can say, hey, that's me. That's like me too. Like Matthew, who knew full well what type of person he was and what other people thought about him. And he said, let me tell you about Jesus, about the Christ, the Messiah, and what he can do. Let me show you these people who he's transformed and who he's changed. You see, it's like Matthew says... <laughs> Let me tell you about someone who's a sinner like me and how he showed me mercy and how he showed me grace. You see, Matthew cries out to us still today by the power of the Holy Spirit and says, let me tell you about my king, the one who's king over all. Amen. And I just pose this question to you here now as we close. This Jesus, he is the king, the sovereign king of all history. In fact, when we make our way finally to the end of this book, in Matthew chapter 28, we'll read the Great Commission, that work that he gives us to go do. But before he states that, Jesus says, All power has been given unto me. You see, that's, that's who Jesus is. He's the all-powerful king. He's the sovereign king over all. And so as we begin this journey through Matthew, what we need to recognize here is, is if, in fact, Jesus is king over all things, is he king over my life? Does he have the place on the throne of my heart? 
And if he does, we can be confident that no matter where we've come from, no matter what we've dealt with, no matter the things that we've been through, we, like those other names listed in Scripture, we can be transformed. We can be used for his glory. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, as we often pray, Lord Jesus, as a good shepherd, give before us, we pray, lead and guide us. We need you, Lord. We're lost without you. And so, Lord, make a way. Show us the way, Lord. And as the psalmist of one, Psalm 119 says, Lord, incline our hearts to your testimonies, not to our own selfish gain. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may behold the wondrous things of your law. Help us, Lord, to live it out each and every day, to make a difference in our community, to be a light, Lord, in darkness, bring encouragement where people need it, Lord. In these times, perhaps more than ever before, Lord, strengthen us, equip us, once more, Lord, lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.